Hello, sci-fi and dystopian universe fans, and welcome to episode two of Brian Prosek's A Measure of Serenity. I'm Abigail Miles, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously, on A Measure of Serenity. Serenity has an incredible mind, but she views her neurodiversity as a curse rather than a blessing. She thinks that her condition is responsible for the challenges in her life. But although her life may be difficult, I have a feeling that things are about to get a whole lot worse. Seven. Home. I gather myself up off the floor. When I rub my thumb and fingers together, I feel a dirty grit. My hand is covered with greasy dirt. As I look down, I see the concrete floor is cracked, uneven, and filthy, covered in grimy film. Then I turn to the bare wall where the filing cabinets had stood moments ago. The light had been bright white then but they now give off a yellowish glow. The room is vacant, but for some empty crates, barrels, and a couple of rusty, dust-covered metal tables. I take a few steps toward the door, then look down. The dim yellow light highlights footprints on the dirty floor. I kneel and run a finger over one of the prints. It is fresh. I follow them to the door with my eyes. Three people. Two are sure-footed men, big. The third looks like someone who was struggling. I make my way to the door and up the dirty concrete stairs leading out of the basement. The door at the top of the stairs is missing. Only the hinges remain. There are no lights on in the upstairs hallway, but the hall is well-lit from the bright sunshine beaming through the windows. Sunshine. It was overcast when I went down to the basement. I make my way back to the student lab, turn the knob, and push on the door. It is not locked, but it is heavy and tight. I brace my feet and lean into the door, opening it halfway. I look inside. There is no lab equipment at all. Instead, there are two large machine presses in the middle of the room. What is left of a conveyor system runs from the first machine to a small door on the far wall where the system has broken apart and fallen over. This cannot be. My heart quickens. I walk into the hallway and toward the main entrance. The facility's pristine marble floor has been replaced by tarnished tile. My pace quickens as I approach the grand lobby at the entrance. But the large oak doors are now metal. And here, the marble floor has turned to concrete. The large wooden columns are now cinder blocks. I spin 360 degrees, then look up. A ceiling crane has taken the place of the beautifully painted mural. My heart beats even faster. My stomach churns. I feel nauseated. Hello? I shout. Is anybody here? I listen. Nothing. Hello? I shout again. Still no response. I pull out my cell phone to call Dad, but the message on the screen reads, 
no service. Movement through the window to the right of the entrance doors catches my eye. I move closer. Dull, gray grass and weeds have grown through the cracks in the parking lot, and the cars that were there when I entered the building, including my car, are gone. Instead, two dark green Humvees and two shiny, black SUVs sit alone in the lot. Eight soldiers dressed in green military uniforms carrying automatic weapons surround the Humvees, and four men in dark suits stand next to the SUVs. One of the men puts his finger to his ear, touches a earpiece, and talks into a small radio on his wrist. Then, I look past the commotion, down the lane heading up to the facility. It, too, is overgrown, but I can see where the Humvees have plowed through, smashing small brush and breaking off tree limbs. The wrought iron fence still stands in places, but most of it has fallen over. The gate is gone, and there is no sign of a chain-link fence or guardhouse. Nothing looks the same. What has happened? What should I do? Should I talk to the men outside? No, I have to avoid being seen until I figure out what is going on. The men look like they are gathering to depart. So, I walk down the hall to the left, careful to avoid the windows. While the building's appearance has changed, it still seems to have the same layout. Hopefully, the small door that exits near the woods is still there. That is the only other exit I know of. At the end of the hall, I see the door. I grab the handle and push down on the latch button. Good. It is not locked. I slowly push it open to make sure it is clear outside, and startle when a loud ring pierces my ears. My palms sweat, and my heart beats rapidly in my chest. The ringing is steady. I press my body against the door. I have to get clear of the building before the men out front swarm it. Can I make it to the woods? Can I sprint that far? I look left, then right. All is clear. I take a deep breath, hold it, and dart across a small clearing. I feel like I have never run this fast in my life. Before I know it, I am in the woods. I stop behind a tree and turn back toward the building. From my angle, I can see the front of the building. Most of the men have gone inside. I assume to investigate the alarm. I look back at the door. It has closed, and I have made it to the woods unnoticed. I look above the door at the deteriorated building. Fifty-three missing bricks on the sidewall at least that I can see through the partially dead ivy that clings to the structure. Until now, I had not noticed the trees. Their leaves are wilted, not dry and colored from fall. They are dull and covered with a tinge of gray. The bushes look the same way. I need to get to the main road and find a ride back to Hancock. I make my way through the woods quietly so the men do not notice me. I walk in a relatively straight line toward the road, keeping the grass-covered driveway in sight on my right. Once I reach the road, I start walking toward Hancock, toward home. What is going on? What has happened to the building and the cars? What about the trees? I relax somewhat as I see that the road and its surroundings look the same, normal, except for the wilting, dull, gray-colored leaves, shrubs, and grass. Once I get back home, 
Everything will be fine. Dad will be there. If something is wrong, my dad will go home to come get me and Jonah. But why has he not tried to call? I check my cell phone again. Still no service. He probably does not have service either. This doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense. I hear a vehicle approaching. Judging from the sound, it is a truck engine, likely a 2001 or 2002 model year. I turn to look. I am right. An old blue pickup truck approaches, slowing down as it gets closer to me. This could be good. A ride. Or it could be bad. A ride with whom? When it reaches me, the truck comes to a complete stop in the middle of the road. The side window slowly cranks down. The driver is an old man wearing a faded red baseball cap pulled low on his forehead. Good. He is probably harmless. And I see nobody else in the vehicle. Hello there, the man says. Are you all right? Did you break down someplace? Maybe I should ignore him. Just keep walking. No, I cannot. He is right here in my path. And he sounds nice enough. In fact, he seems somewhat familiar. Something like that, I say. Can I give you a lift? I'm headed into Hancock to pick up a few things at the five and ten, he says. What is the five and ten? I look him up and down, then glance into the cab of the truck. I still do not know if I can trust him, so I do not want to get into the cab with him. His eyes follow mine as I look into the cab. He pulls his cap up and gives me a reassuring smile. Tell you what, if it makes you feel more comfortable, why don't you hop in the bed? There's an old blanket back there to keep the wind off of you, and I'll take you on into town if that's where you're a-headin'. What'll you say? That seems safe. If he stops someplace that I do not like, I can just hop out and run. Even though I am not athletic, I am sure I can outrun him. And the man seems even more familiar. I give him a slight smile. Okay, then. Thanks. He gets out of the cab, helps me into the pickup bed, and then hops back in the cab. The pickup moves forward, and the man shouts back to me through the open window. By the way, the name is Johnson. Jeb Johnson. My heart skips a beat. Jeb Johnson? That is why he looks so familiar. But I have never seen nor heard of Jeb Johnson acting this nice and civilized. In fact, I have never heard Jeb Johnson say a kind word to anybody. The pickup slows to a stop. I lean forward to look around the cab. We are at a red light at the edge of Hancock. That is odd. There was never a stoplight here. I look at the road signs. They are correct. Old Hancock Road running north-south and Main Street running east-west. Mr. Johnson rolls down his window again to speak. Is there some place in particular that I can take you? I think for a moment. Should I give him my address and have him take me there? Or should I just have him drop me off at the nearest intersection? Normally, I would never give my address to a stranger, not even in sleepy little Hancock. But this is not normal. 
and Mr. Johnson really is not a stranger. I will get home much quicker if he drops me off at my house. I sit up on my knees and face the cab. 425 Bennington Road, out toward the school. If it is not too far out of your way. Not a problem at all, Mr. Johnson replies. I lean back against the cab, pull the heavy wool blanket up to my chin, and huddle underneath it. Even though the sun is shining, the air is chilly. I see the reflection of the traffic light as it turns green, and the pickup proceeds through town. I recognize the street names, but not the houses as we approach Bennington Road. When the pickup turns onto my street, I feel a tingle down my spine and heaviness in my chest. I sit up on my knees and scoot to the edge of the bed. Laying my arms on the bed rail, I lean over the side of the truck to get a closer look. The landmarks are somewhat familiar, but what happened to the houses? Where are they? My beautiful street, which should be aligned with large maple trees, is barren, not even grass. And the small, quaint houses have been replaced by convenience stores, gas stations, and apartment buildings. This cannot be right. I look again at the street sign at the next intersection. It reads, Bennington Road. I know of no other Bennington Road in Hancock. The pickup slows and turns into a small parking lot leading up to a large, dark brick building. The facade is stained with streaks of black and green from what looks like years of neglect. In the center of the building hangs an exterior fire escape, reddish-brown with rust. I can see immediately from the uneven spacing that twelve rungs are missing. The bars covering the cracked and broken windows are bent and battered. The black numbers on the side of the building read 425. Mr. Johnson steps out of the pickup. His eyes dart from me to the building and then back to me. He tilts his head to one side. Here we are, 425 Bennington. He pauses. I do not look at him. Are you all right? Is this where you wanted to go? I keep my eyes fixed on the building, trying to comprehend what is going on. This is 425 Bennington Road? Yes, Mr. Johnson says. Is there someone here you want to see? But where is my house? I turn my head to look past Mr. Johnson and down the street. Do you live in that apartment building? Mr. Johnson motions toward the building. I shake my head. No, I live in a house with a yard. Mr. Johnson chuckles politely. A house with a yard on Bennington Road, in Hancock? There never have been any houses with yards on Bennington Road. I do not answer. I slowly climb out of the truck, taking Mr. Johnson's hand for support, and leave him standing there. I approach the building cautiously, fearing that some crazy person or savage animal will come pouncing out of the double-bolt steel door. I climb the steps to the front door and peer through the small square window in its center. I use my hand to shield the glare of the sun on the window, but the thick glass is stained yellow and is too opaque to see through. I put my face against the window. Still no good. As I pull my head back, I see the reflection of a man looking at me from a distance. I pick up the colors of tan and black. 
I turn around quickly, but I only see Mr. Johnson. It must have been my imagination. I pull on the long door handle. It will not budge. I look on the left side of the door and then the right and find a voice comm button. I press it and say, Hello? Silence. Hello? I say again. There is a long pause before a crackling voice comes back through the comm. What do you want? It is the voice of an older woman. I really do not know what I want. I know that this is not my home, even though it is my address. What I really want is answers, but I do not know where to get them. What can I do? Where can I go? Who can I talk to? I am lost and alone in a place that I do not recognize. But this is probably as good a place as any to start looking for answers. I feel a cold gust of wind against my neck. It reminds me that it is autumn. I pull my gray hooded sweatshirt up higher on my neck and shrug my shoulders. The crackling voice comes again. Well, what do you want, now that you've bothered me? I press the calm button. Do... I pause, thinking of what exactly to say. Do the Ashdowns live here? I know the answer. No, they do not. But I have to ask. I have to start someplace with some question. The calm crackles louder than before. I strain to hear the old woman's words over the crackling. Unit 212. No, impossible. This is not my home. Maybe it is a different Ashdown. Philip Ashdown? I ask. Yeah, the woman replies. But he's not here. He's never here. I see him stop by to get his mail, but he never stays. How often does he come by? I ask. Do you know when he will be back? I really need to talk to him. Don't know, the woman snaps back. I just run the building. I'm nobody's personal assistant. Another gust of wind cuts through my sweatshirt. I fold my arms and lean forward. The calm crackles again. You can probably find his daughter if it's that important. I seen her on TV a lot. You know, waving guns around and shouting anti-government stuff. She's gonna get herself in lots of trouble. I suppose that's why her pop doesn't come round here no more. I step back from the calm. Maybe I heard her incorrectly through the crackling and popping. Or maybe she is talking about another Philip Ashdown. Or maybe the woman is just crazy. But I still do not know where I am. And now I have more questions than answers. When I walk down the steps, my head grows light. I look up, but the sun blinds me. I close my eyes for a few seconds and whisper, concentrate, serenity, focus. When I open my eyes, I see a light brick building across the street. It grows dim as I feel myself wobble. Then I see a person on the sidewalk across the street in front of the building. Is someone following me? He wears a tan Carhartt jacket, black pants, black boots, and a black beanie. I see all of that in a second before I stumble forward. I feel the firm grip of Mr. Johnson's hand on my forearm, catching me. His other hand is on my shoulder. Easy there, miss, 
he says. Let me help you back to the truck. Despite the aggravation and isolation that my mind causes me, it has always kept me one step ahead of everyone else. I always know what to expect, what is coming next, what to do. But not now. Now, I am lost. I have no idea what is coming, where to go, or what to do. I have no control. The grip on my arm softens as Mr. Johnson leads me to his pickup. He opens the passenger door. I do not resist as he helps me get in. I turn toward Mr. Johnson as he climbs into the driver's seat. He has a look of compassion on his face. The man you're looking for, Philip Ashdown, I know something about him. He's in the news sometimes. A smart man. Does government research. Sad, though. I understand he lost his wife and son in a car crash a number of years ago. He's just left with the daughter the landlord was talking about. Seems like they're estranged. I do not look at Mr. Johnson, although I hear him. I look for the person who seems to be watching me. Apparently, that has not changed. Someone is following me, and it is someone different again. I look around the parking lot, and then at the dark brick building that is 425 Bennington Road. I turn toward the light brick building across the street, and then I look up and down the street. I do not see him. Mr. Johnson starts the truck. Can I ask what your name is and where you're from? I would like to try to help you find whatever you are looking for. Then it sinks in. Mr. Johnson said that Philip Ashdown's son was killed too. Did you say that his wife and son were killed in a car crash? Yeah, Mr. Johnson replied. Sad, isn't it? Something happened to my life when I went through that sphere. Everything has changed. 22 potholes in the parking lot. Mr. Johnson pulls the truck onto the street. 14 buildings and six street signs in sight. 10 light poles. I need to focus on something. I need an objective. There's another place I need to check out, I say. Harold and May Steiner's place on Loop Road. Hopefully Grandma and Grandpa's farm has not changed and they will be home. Mr. Johnson looks at me. You know Harold and May Steiner? They were my neighbors. Their farm is next to mine. They were your neighbors? But their farm is next to yours. What do you mean? Which is it? Mr. Johnson turns back toward the road. I'm sorry, miss but they died in a house fire a few years back. Their farm burned down. House, barn, garage, everything. I sit silently for a moment, shocked. It cannot be true. I had lunch with them yesterday. What? How? That makes no sense. Well, they never found the cause of the fire, but it was pretty suspicious since every building on the property burned down. Probably had something to do with their granddaughter, the Ashdown girl, and her anti-government movement. It was bound to come back and haunt her or her family eventually. Anyway, the farm has sat deserted ever since. I stare out the side window. I have nothing to say and no idea about what is going on. I'm sorry to have told you, Mr. Johnson continues. 
I can tell that they must have been special to you. What can I do to help you? I look at Mr. Johnson. I have to find Philip Ashdown. Mr. Johnson turns the steering wheel of his blue pickup, hand over hand, until the truck turns right at the traffic light. He glances at me. I think I know someone who may be able to help you. Eight, Mr. Bailey. I stare out the side window and stay silent as we drive through town to the east, trying to think of my next move. I know this part of town well, or at least I used to know it well. I recognize most of the road names and some of the houses, but there are additional roads going off Main Street that I do not know, and there are commercial buildings and stores I do not recognize. I do not understand why. But at least while I am focusing on the present situation, my mind is not wandering. As we approach the city limit to the east, the pickup slows before coming to a complete stop. Traffic congestion. Cars are stopped as far as I can see. Fifty-four cars, I count, all stopped on the road in front of and behind us. Some cars turn around in gas stations and parking lots that, until now, never existed in Hancock. But that just makes the congestion worse, as they cannot get back out. A tan station wagon pulls into an Exxon station. It immediately makes a 360 to re-enter the same road, trying to go the other direction. It slowly edges out, forcing its way into traffic, trying to cross the eastbound lane just behind us. But a Ford Explorer is not going to let the station wagon through. It is a standoff. The Explorer holds its ground and continues to edge forward. The station wagon continues to edge its way out until I hear the crunch of metal against metal. Neither driver has yielded. I have never seen traffic like this in Hancock. What is going on? I ask Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson rolls down his window again and sticks his head out, stretching his neck. I assume it is an attempt to see over the traffic. Probably another protest. I turn toward Mr. Johnson. Protest? Here in Hancock? And what do you mean by another? When has there ever been a protest in Hancock? Mr. Johnson takes his hands off the wheel and turns, resting his right elbow on his seat back. Yes. There are protests all the time, and not just here, all over the world, led by those anti-government outsiders. Where on earth have you been hiding? The more I learn, the more I do not understand. Was the sphere some sort of time portal? Is that the project that Mr. Bailey was going to have us work on? No, time travel is impossible. I confirmed that myself. And, for the most part, Mr. Johnson looks like he did before I went through the sphere. He is just nicer. I have not heard about any anti-government protests, I say. I don't know what happened to you, young lady, but these outsiders have been protesting ever since the U.R. was formed, Mr. Johnson says. And before that, they protested the U.S. government. They're led by the daughter of the Mr. Ashdown that you're looking for. Mr. Ashdown, of course, is a government man. Probably cut into him like a knife when he found out his daughter was a traitor. 
opposing the very government he works for. It's all over the news, every day, everywhere. I listen as Mr. Johnson rambles on, but I stare straight ahead, motionless. I absorb everything he says without thinking about it, but I do not process what he is saying. He continues, The protests have really picked up lately. Rumor has it the government killed or captured the Ashdown girl. That news, if confirmed, will probably break the back of government outsiders all over the world. The Ashdown girl held it all together. I couldn't be happier, though. I say good riddance. Maybe now we can have some peace, get back to normal, and let the government get back to rebuilding everything from the wars. The pickup starts to edge forward with the rest of the traffic, but only by inches. The more Mr. Johnson tells me, the more questions I have. Philip Ashdown's daughter? I am Philip Ashdown's daughter. And whoever he thinks is Philip Ashdown's daughter is the leader of the Outsiders? What Outsiders? What is the UR? What wars? I don't want to hear any more from Mr. Johnson. I want answers, not more questions. Where are we going? Who are we going to see? I demand. Philip Ashdown? Mr. Johnson cranks the steering wheel hard to the left. The pickup thumps over the curb and onto the sidewalk. We're going to someone that can take you to Mr. Ashdown. Mr. Johnson cracks a smile. I usually don't drive like this, but I need to get you around this blockade. After two blocks, we cut a sharp right across traffic. Blocks? There were never city blocks in Hancock before. A horn blows as we enter an alley. The alley opens onto an intersection, busy but not stop and go. Mr. Johnson forces his way into the traffic and turns right. Fortunately, we do not share the same fate as the station wagon. I look to my right and see a small park. Again, the trees are gray and wilted, and the grass is the same. Not greenish-brown from fall, but gray. Dead. We turn left again. I lean to the right and look back. Protesters stand in the street. A military unit with soldiers dressed in green fatigues closes in on them. The group slowly fades from my sight as we continue eastbound once again. I follow Mr. Johnson up the brick-paved walkway toward the front door of a large stone and stucco house on Antrim Road. The beautifully landscaped exterior is offset by the partly wilted and partly dead plants. Even the fall mums are dead. There have always been nice houses on Antrim, but I do not recall seeing this one before. The feeling that I am being watched is back as we climb the concrete steps to the front porch. As we reach the top step, the house's front windows are blocked from my view by two large, beautifully crafted pillars, one on each of the porch's front corners. I turn around and see the man in the Carhartt jacket and black beanie dart behind the house across the street. So I am being followed again. This man either wants me to know I am being followed, or he is the worst tale ever. I stand behind Mr. Johnson as he rings the bell, but I can still see the front door when it opens. 
I think I recognize the man, but he seems thinner, with darker hair than the man I am thinking of. Jeb Johnson, the man says, to what do I owe the pleasure? Mr. Bailey, Mr. Johnson says, I have someone here who needs to speak to Philip Ashdown. I step to the side of Mr. Johnson. Dirk Bailey, I ask. I have never been to Mr. Bailey's house, so I assume this is it. But other than his face, he looks different now. I do not understand. I just saw him in his office Friday. Mr. Bailey steps onto the concrete porch. His eyes are fixed on my face as he moves. His stare does not leave me. His eyes are wide, his mouth open. Serenity Ashdown? I look at Mr. Bailey. He is still staring at me. Then I look at Mr. Johnson. He is now staring at me as well and has a very puzzled look on his face. I notice the cold breeze again. What? Mr. Johnson says. Serenity Ashdown? She is the outsider's commander. I've seen her on the news. He turns to face Mr. Bailey. How can this be? Mr. Bailey walks past me to the front edge of the porch. He peers to the left and then to the right, glancing around each pillar. His gaze is off in the distance. Then he pauses for a moment, staring across the street. Did he see the Carhartt man too? Maybe I should say something about him. No, the less I say, the better. It will give me a better chance to figure out what is going on. Mr. Bailey? Is something wrong? I ask. Mr. Bailey ignores me and turns toward Mr. Johnson. Did you notice anyone following you here? Mr. Johnson cocks his head and squints, his forehead wrinkled. Well, no, but I really wasn't paying attention. I never do. Why would anyone want to follow an old farmer? Mr. Bailey pats Mr. Johnson on the shoulder. No reason. I'm just overly cautious these days. But to be safe, you better be getting out of here. Maybe go out of town a ways and then circle back. I'll take care of Serenity from here. Mr. Johnson turns toward me. Will you be okay? I think Dirk here has the best chance of getting you to Mr. Ashdown. I mean, your father or whoever he is to you. Yes, I say. My eyes move from Mr. Johnson to Mr. Bailey and then back to Mr. Johnson. Thank you, I say as he walks down the steps. Mr. Johnson has been so kind. I know a simple thank you is not enough, but that is the best I can come up with. As I sink into the soft leather sofa in the beautifully furnished formal living room, exhaustion starts to overtake me. I had lost track of time. I had not realized how tired I was or that I had not eaten since breakfast. An orange ray of sunshine comes through the front window and hits my eyes as the sun partially pops out from behind a cloud, trying to hang on to the day as it touches the treetops and houses on the horizon. I turn away, lean my head against the brown sofa, and take a deep breath. I dare not close my eyes, although I long to sleep. Can I get you something to eat or drink? Mr. Bailey asks as he enters the living room carrying a file with paper sticking out of the edges. I want food, 
but I do not know Mr. Bailey well at all. My chest feels tight, and my stomach aches. Not so much from hunger, but from worry. Worry about the situation, about my dad, and about being in Dirk Bailey's house. Mr. Bailey has been extremely nice, nothing like the Dirk Bailey I had come to know through my dad. But then again, since I passed through that sphere, nothing has been as I had previously known it. But the good thing is that the worry keeps me focused on the situation. No time for my mind to wander off. Maybe some water, please, I say. That will do for now. I can worry about food after I get some answers. Mr. Bailey leaves and returns quickly, handing me a bottled water. Thank you, I say. I am too tired at this point for any more formalities. I just want to get right to the point. I open the bottle and take a drink. The cool water feels good on my throat. I take another long drink. You were thirsty, Mr. Bailey says with a slight grin. Then the grin turns into somewhat of a frown, and he shifts in his armchair. He opens his mouth to speak, then pauses as if he does not know what to say. So, how did you get hooked up with Jeb Johnson? I ignore his question. I want my own answers. Mr. Johnson said you can help me find my dad, Philip Ashdown. Can you? And what happened at the facility? I went there to work on your project, and suddenly everything is different. Does all of this have something to do with your research project? Mr. Bailey shifts again in his chair and leans forward. Well, it's a little complicated. Can you tell me how long you have been looking for your dad? Now, this is more like the Dirk Bailey I know. Avoiding questions and playing games. I am not going to let him lead me in circles. He is either going to help me or not. It is that simple. I sit up and try to raise my voice, although my loud voice is still no louder than most people's normal tones. Can you or can you not take me to my dad? I hear two large vehicles in the distance that sound like Humvees, probably very close to Antrim. I do not think Mr. Bailey can hear them yet, but he walks to the front window. He stands off to the side, pulls back the curtain with one hand, and looks right, then left. Mr. Bailey steps completely clear of the window and turns toward me. Okay, Serenity, I will level with you. Here it goes. At some point when you started to search for your father, things in and around Hancock became, well, a little weird to you, didn't they? They became different, as you said, right? He pauses. The answer, of course, is yes. I nod. Go on. I hear the vehicles getting closer. Definitely Humvees. He takes a couple of steps toward me and scratches his head. Right before that happened, were you in the building where your father works? Maybe even in his lab? I nod again. Yes, I said I was at the facility. Okay, yes, that's right. That's what they call it, Mr. Bailey says. And, by chance... Did you happen to pass through a large object? A sphere of sorts? I stand up. Yes. What happened? 
What was that object? Was that your idea of a time portal or something? Dirk puts his hands on my shoulders. Not my idea. And no, not a time portal. You are in the same time, and you are in Hancock, New Hampshire, United States, planet Earth. But you're in a different place. I look down and shake my head. Let me explain, he says. Before he says another word, the Humvees round the turn onto Antrim. We both hear them now and go to the window. Two black Humvees stop in front of Mr. Bailey's house. Three men wearing green military fatigues and carrying automatic weapons hop out of the first Humvee and surround the second, taking a guard stance. A man in a dark suit and sunglasses gets out of the front passenger side and opens the back door. The sunglasses are odd, given that it is dusk, not to mention the military posturing. An older gentleman in a suit and black trench coat climbs out of the back. I look at Mr. Bailey. Who are they? Mr. Bailey leans his head forward so he is close to me. I don't have time to explain any more. I work with these people, but you can't trust them. They aren't who you think they are, and don't believe anything they tell you. I'll explain more when I can. The doorbell rings. I do not trust Dirk Bailey, and he is telling me not to trust these men. So, does that mean I should trust them? Nine. C-O-I. I wake up when the Humvee turns off. I rub my eyes. My head aches from getting not nearly enough sleep. Even in a car full of strangers, I slept. Exhaustion had finally overtaken me. It takes a minute for my eyes to adjust to the city lights. I read the sign on the building in front of the Humvee. Marriott. I must have slept through the entire drive from Hancock to Boston, where the older gentleman had said we were going. He introduced himself as Chase Franklin. James is getting a room for you and has taken the liberty of ordering you room service, Mr. Franklin says. Eat what you like and leave the rest. I do not answer. I am too tired to think of all the questions I still have. One of the men in military fatigues opens the Humvee door and escorts me toward the hotel entrance. I stop when Mr. Franklin steps out of the Humvee and turns to me. His stern face and perfect posture in his black trench coat make him look much more formidable than his short height and thinning gray-blonde hair otherwise would. You get some rest, Mr. Franklin says. We'll pick you up tomorrow and take you to COY headquarters, where I think we can answer all of your questions. C-O-I, I say. Yes, Mr. Franklin replies. You haven't heard of the... He stops himself. Right. Of course you don't know what that is. We'll explain tomorrow. Right now, just rest. I cross my arms, lean forward into the crisp evening air, and follow the military man. I awaken to the sound of knocking on the hotel room door. Just a minute, I say. I climb out of bed and realize I slept in my clothes. I was too tired to change. But what would I have changed into anyway? Miss Ashdown, a man says from the other side of the door. I have some clothes for you to change into. Of course he does. 
They have thought of everything. Were they expecting me? I open the door, and the military man who escorted me into the hotel holds four large bags full of various clothing items. Shirts, pants, socks, sweatshirts, coats, hats. He hands the bags to me. I was told to tell you to pick out what you like and what fits and leave the rest. I notice the circles under the man's eyes. There is an empty fast food cup and wrinkled sandwich wrapper at his feet. The other man, James, from the first Humvee, stands across the hall, watching us. He wears another black suit, white shirt, and, yes, sunglasses, even inside. I look at the military man. Were you outside my room all night? He straightens up, takes a step backward, puts his back against the wall and looks straight ahead, not making eye contact. I'm not at liberty to say, ma'am. I shake my head. Of course he is not at liberty to say. Nobody seems to be at liberty to say anything. I go back inside my room and sort through the clothes. They have thought of everything, even clean underwear. A little while later, bathed and cleaned and dressed in a pair of loose-fitting jeans, a dark purple turtleneck, and a light white jacket, I head out the door with a renewed desire to find my dad. James hands me breakfast to go. Then he, the military guard, and I head to the hotel lobby. When the elevator opens, the lobby is packed with people who stand shoulder to shoulder. I survey the room. 257 people, not counting the hotel employees behind the desk and assisting with bags or the guards in green military uniforms. All adults. I pick out each distinct voice talking in different languages and accents. 51 Americans, 40 Chinese, 86 Russians, 31 Hispanics, 14 Italians, 8 Japanese, 7 Cubans, 6 Koreans, and 14 for whom I am not sure of their nationality. What is going on? I ask. New government contingencies are arriving from all over, James says. It's like this in all of the hotels in all of the big cities. Countries are knocking down the doors to get into the UR lately. UR support has really taken off. But Mr. Franklin will explain all of that, I am sure. We exit the hotel and climb into the Humvee. The driver is waiting for us. As we drive to what I presume will be COI headquarters, I notice that the buildings in Boston look different than I remember from the last time I was in Boston. They look newer, yet dirtier. They are not as tall, but are more condensed, stacked side by side. More like Gotham City in the Batman movies. Are we in Boston? I ask. James, sitting beside me, looks at me, tips his sunglasses down with one finger, and peers over them. Yes, it probably looks different to you. Again, Mr. Franklin will explain. I want to ask more questions, but I can tell that James either does not want to explain anything or, more likely, does not have the authority to do so. Our destination is a building similar to the others we passed in downtown Boston, but this one has no sign or markings. The streets are crowded with people going about their business day, as in any large city. But as we enter the building, one person catches my attention out of the corner of my eye. I glance quickly to the sidewalk on the opposite side of the street. There, in the crowd of people, standing and looking at me and my entourage, 
is the Carhartt man in his beanie, except this time he is making no attempt to go unnoticed. He just stands there, watching us in broad daylight. I stare over my shoulder at him as I move forward, walking between James and the military man. So now I at least know that it is not these people who have been following me. But then, who has been? And why? Inside the building is a large sign that reads Center of Information in English. The words are also written in Chinese and Russian. Oh, C-O-I. We pass through two large rectangular devices. One is a metal detector. I do not know what the other detects. Then, one at a time, we rest our chins on a retinal scan device sitting on top of a high counter. When I take my turn, a computerized voice says, Serenity Ashdown. I sit at one end of the large mahogany table and scan the conference room. I did not need to see which button had been pressed in the elevator to know that we traveled to the 15th floor. The elevator's speed and the travel time told me that. James stands just inside the door. The military man is gone. There are 30 chairs around the table, 21 blue ink pens, 19 black ink pens, and 16 markers in the three baskets spread out along the center of the table. 56 squares in the carpet pattern on the floor. Stop it, I whisper. The door opens, and in walks Mr. Franklin and Mr. Bailey, both dressed in suits, followed by two more men dressed in dark suits, and a fifth person I cannot see at first. Mr. Franklin walks along the table, which stretches from just inside the door to where he sits at the far end, his back facing the floor-to-ceiling glass window. This is the first time I have seen him walk. He has a slight limp, because his right leg is three-quarters of an inch shorter than his left. Mr. Bailey leans his hip against the credenza sitting to the left of the door. I still cannot see the fifth man, but when he steps out from behind Mr. Bailey and the other men, I see him. Dad! I jump up, run to him, throw my arms around him, and hug as tightly as I can. He squeezes me back. We keep our arms locked but pull our heads back so that we can see each other's faces. Unlike everyone else since I walked through the sphere, he looks exactly like he is supposed to. Philip Ashdown, my dad. This is reassuring. Dad, I say. Oh, how I have been searching for you. You have no idea how worried I have been. Where have you been? What is going on? He smiles at me. Serenity, I am so sorry. I have wanted to call you and let you know where I was, but I couldn't. I have been working on a high-level security clearance project for the government. But now that you are here, sit down and we will tell you everything. In fact, we need your help. My spirits sink a little. Not again. My help, I say. Dad, you know how I feel about that. Do you really need me? Yes, my dad says. We really do. He hesitates. I really do. Let's sit down and I will explain. Explain? Will you really explain everything? I ask. I mean, everything. What this project is and what you have been working on all this time. My dad looks a bit puzzled when he replies. 
Yes, of course. As we take our seats, I see half-forced smiles on the faces of Mr. Franklin and the two new men. Mr. Bailey has no smile at all. His lips are turned down, and he looks away, not even paying attention. Then I remember his words. You can't trust them. They aren't who you think they are. I believe you know Mr. Franklin and Dirk Bailey. My dad nods toward each of them as he says their names. This is Gordon Conklin and Artemis Glenn. He nods toward each of them in turn. Mr. Conklin and Mr. Glenn each stand and extend a hand. Miss Ashdown, it is a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Conklin says. I shake their hands and force a smile. My dad, sitting directly opposite from me, leans across the table. Okay, so let's get you some answers. Where were you when you realized that I was gone? So I know where to start. I put my forearms on the table and lean forward. I was going to the facility to assist Mr. Bailey with a research project. I pause and look at Mr. Bailey. Dad, you left a message sometime during the night before that you needed to talk to me, that it was urgent, remember? And you left me a message at the facility's gate to see you. Again, it was marked urgent. I sit up, sliding my arms back, my hands still resting on the table. But I could not reach you on your phone, and nobody at the facility would take me to you. So I started searching for you. I found my way to the basement lab. I thought you might be working there. And that is where I found it. Found what? Mr. Franklin interrupts from the far end of the table. I look first at Mr. Franklin and then back at my dad. I continue to address my dad. The sphere, or whatever it is. Is that what you have been working on for Mr. Bailey? Is that the project? I glance at Mr. Bailey again and then back at my dad. What is it? Why did you need to see me so urgently? Where did you go? Was it active? Mr. Franklin jumps in again. Did you walk through it? I do not look at Mr. Franklin this time, annoyed by his interruptions. I wish I could just talk to my dad alone. I want to hear everything from him. I want to ask him my questions and have him ask me his. I lean forward toward my dad. What is that thing? Some sort of time travel device or space-time continuum? Things are different in Hancock since I fell through it. People are different. They look a little different, and they act a lot different. Everyone except you and me. Mr. Franklin stands up quickly, pushing his chair back and leaning on the table with both hands, palms down. He slaps the table with one hand. So, you did go through it. He looks at Mr. Conklin and Mr. Glenn, who are seated at the other end of the table, nearest to my dad and me. It stayed active longer than we thought. This just might work. We may be able to pass through. Both men shoot Mr. Franklin a glare. My dad glances at the men and then at Mr. Franklin. What is going on? What did they mean by that? They knew it would have some effect. Why did they not shut it down? My dad and I both went through it, and we are the only ones who are the same as we used to be. Why? I lean across the table, looking eye to eye with my dad. Dad, what is going on? Please explain it to me. My dad grasps both of my hands. Okay, Pumpkin, I'll explain. Pumpkin? He never calls me Pumpkin. 
It should be peanut. You are correct, Serenity, my dad continues. We have developed a device to alter space and time. It is a government-funded project, the first step in trying to save the planet. You and I went through it relatively close in time, so to us, things seem different, but different in the same way. If others go through at a later time, things will also seem different, but not in the same way as they seem different to us. I lean back, pulling my hands away from my dad's. I look at Mr. Franklin. He looks at my dad with one eyebrow raised. I turn my attention to the other end of the table. Mr. Conklin and Mr. Glenn shift in their seats, looking at each other. The explanation seems plausible, but something still does not seem to add up. How can different people see different things at the same time? And Jonah? What about Jonah? And Mr. Bailey had told me the sphere is not a time portal. I look at Mr. Bailey, who sits between my dad and Mr. Franklin. He has been quiet, almost motionless and expressionless. Mr. Bailey, is all of this true? Have my dad and I changed the space-time continuum as we see it? Mr. Bailey looks at my dad, then at Mr. Conklin and Mr. Glenn, and finally at Mr. Franklin. Mr. Franklin gives him a nod. Mr. Bailey looks at me, still with a blank face. Yes, Serenity, it is as your father has explained. Before I can ask another question, my dad speaks again. That is the reason for my urgent messages to you. We were so close and wanted to test it. I wanted to let you know what I was doing in case something went wrong. I'm so glad you searched for me. My dad has never been the type of person to test something out without taking more precautions. Although, Mr. Bailey may have forced him to test it. But none of this explains the lady telling me that Jonah was killed. I look at my dad. The lady who lives in the building at our address said Jonah is dead. How can that be? That's why I need your help, my dad says. We have to go back through the sphere so things will return to normal for us. The sphere is gone, I say. It just disappeared. How can we go through it again? My dad shifts in his seat, now facing Mr. Franklin but still looking at me. These gentlemen have built another one in a different location. He nods toward Mr. Conklin and Mr. Glenn. And that's where you come in. The computer with the coordinates disappeared along with the transportal device, as we call it. Well, they didn't disappear, but they are gone in our new space-time continuum. My dad stands up and steps behind his chair, putting both hands on the back of it. He leans toward me. They have built the device, but they need the exact coordinates. Without them, you and I cannot get back home as we know it and things won't ever be the same for us. He pauses, straightens up, and pulls the chair toward him. I know you observed everything the moment you walked into the basement lab, and I know you remember everything you saw. I close my eyes and rub them with my fists. I know what my dad is going to ask. He sits back down, pulling his chair up to the table. Can you tell us the fixed coordinate numbers on each of the computers, and the sequence of numbers running on the computer closest to the transportal device? That computer had an algorithm running. There would have been a series of numbers, 
75 to 100 of them, eventually repeating. He places his elbows on the table and leans toward me. We need to know the whole series, starting with the point where they repeat. That number sequence and the fixed numbers on the other computers are the only way to program the device to the final coordinates shown on the screen on the transportal itself. You probably saw that too. I shift in my seat. I start to feel warm, a little uncomfortable. I did see all of the computers, and I did notice the number sequence, and I watched until the series repeated. Yes, I saw them, I say. But the sequence of numbers, you know that I cannot simply recall that many numbers changing that quickly. Mr. Franklin interrupts yet again. He leans forward and looks at my dad. But you said she has a photographic memory. I am puzzled. My dad would never tell someone that, especially not a complete stranger. Maybe my dad has changed too. I look at him. He looks at me and then at Mr. Franklin. Well, Chase, that's not exactly what I... My dad starts. It is not exactly photographic, I interrupt. A photographic memory would not have a chance at recalling that many numbers changing that quickly. I did not say that I cannot do it. I said that it is not that simple. I need to see the sequence again. When I see it, I will recognize it. Mr. Conklin finally speaks. We have a program that will run every possible sequence of the numbers that could make up the coordinates. We would just need you, Miss Ashdown, to sit and watch them until you identify the right numbers in the right order. That could take some time. How can I possibly sit at a computer that long? How can I keep my mind from going crazy with so many numbers flashing in so many different orders? But it may be the only way to get my dad and me back to normal. I look at my dad. Is this the only way? He nods. I look at Mr. Bailey for a sign, any sign, a nod or shake of the head, some sort of eye contact. I get nothing. I look at Mr. Franklin and then back at my dad. Okay, then. If it will get us home, I will do it. 10. Something in the Road Strong wind in the morning air stings my face. Light snow flurries dance against the overcast sky. The jacket they gave me is a little large, so I pull my hands inside and wrap it around me like a cocoon. James opens the door of the black SUV for me, and I climb into the back with my dad. Mr. Franklin already sits in the front passenger seat. James climbs in to drive, and two green military Humvees follow us. The car is quiet during our drive through the city. The farther we get into the country, the more deserted the road becomes. That, along with the cold, dreary day, gives me an eerie feeling. I break the silence. Mr. Franklin, why do we need all of the protection? Don't worry, Mr. Franklin says. It's just a precaution. There are certain people who think what we are doing here is wrong. They would rather suffer and watch our planet die than try to fix it. But they won't try anything against our military escort. That's why I brought them along. I look at my dad. He stares out the window at the countryside, not engaged in the conversation. How is your time portal going to fix the planet? 
I ask. Mr. Franklin turns and looks at me. We are trying to go back in time to a period before everything started to die. We want to isolate the cause. If we can prevent it from happening in the past, that should fix the present. The more I think about time travel, the more I question it. Dr. Gruber's theory of time travel just does not seem like a plausible explanation for all of this. But, Mr. Franklin, I say, I have never seen a calculation that makes time travel possible. How can it be done? Serenity, my dad says sharply as he turns to look at me. Mr. Franklin knows what he's doing. Now, stop with the questions. I tilt my head and give my dad a puzzled look. He has never talked to me like that before. And he has never told me to stop asking questions. In fact, his motto has always been to ask as many questions as you can until you understand something, and then ask more. Mr. Franklin interrupts before I can respond. It's okay, Phil. Your daughter is a sharp girl. Let her ask away. She has a right to know how it works. However, rather than me trying to explain it to you, Serenity, I'll show you as soon as we get to the site. While they are setting up the computers to run the algorithm, I'll show you on the portal's mainframe how time travel works. My dad gives Mr. Franklin a glare. I do not respond as the sound of a car approaching from the rear, going very fast, catches my attention. From the sound of the RPM, its speed far exceeds the limit of 55 miles per hour. I listen as it approaches the last Humvee and then accelerates even more to pass our caravan. I look to the left, past my dad, as the car passes us. The driver is the Carhartt man in his black beanie. He turns and looks directly into our car. As soon as I make eye contact, he looks forward and continues past. As the Carhartt man pulls back into the lane in front of us and quickly outpaces us, a flock of birds takes off from the brush at the edge of the woods ahead, off to the right side of the road. I see from the bend in the grass that they took off in the same direction as the wind. But birds take off against the wind, unless they are afraid of something beneath them in that direction. I glance to the left and see the same thing. Another flock of birds takes off with the wind and I noticed the slightest movement in the brush near where they took off. Mr. Franklin continues talking. Oh, and one more thing, I interrupt him. James, I say, there is trouble up ahead. You better stop. James looks ahead to the right and then the left and says, or speed up to get past it. My head snaps back as the SUV rapidly accelerates. I hear weapons fire, grenade launchers or rocket launchers or something one on each side of us. I instantly calculate the spot of impact, assuming the weapons were aimed straight toward the road and were fired from where the birds took off. I do not know our exact rate of speed, so it is an estimate. But I know that we are not going to make it past the point of impact in time. Stop now, I shout. The SUV does not slow. My ears suddenly feel like they will burst at the concussion and sound of an explosion. The SUV's tires squeal as James slams on the brakes. The SUV skids sideways. Dust and debris fly high and in every direction, coming from the middle of the road just ahead of us. We skid to a sideways stop beside a large crater in the road. 
The first Humvee slams head-on into the driver's side of our SUV, pinning James and my dad. My head slams against the window. I feel a sharp pain in the side of my head. Then blood trickles down onto my ear. There is another explosion behind our caravan, and the SUV jolts forward, turning on its side and skidding into the crater. Something smacks my left eye, and there is a sharp pain in my right side, up around my rib cage. I try to get my bearings, but I am lightheaded. Everything is hazy. My dad is bloody, hanging from a seatbelt above me, but he appears to be conscious. I cannot see James or Mr. Franklin. When I try to say something, I cannot form any words. Shouts come from behind us. I cannot make out all of the words, but they sound like commands. I hear someone say, Look out! Over there! Then gunfire. Lots of gunfire. Odd-sounding weapons from behind us. Probably the military personnel in the Humvees. Rifles are fired from the fields and trees on both sides of us. But no shots hit our SUV or even come close. The shooters are targeting the back of the caravan. I try to think about what to do, but my head feels lighter and lighter. I fight to maintain consciousness. I try to move, but I am stuck. My head and side ache. These must be the people Mr. Franklin was just talking about. They must want to kill us. Just as the gunfire stops, I hear footsteps racing toward our SUV. I cannot focus my sight on anything. Everything is hazy and fuzzy, and my head throbs. I hear a voice. Is she in there? Yes, I see her, says another voice. The first voice replies, Is she all right? I don't know. She looks pretty banged up. What happened? How did her car get hit? It wasn't supposed to be touched. Sorry, boss, a different voice says in a heavy Japanese accent. I had the trajectory perfect, I'm sure, but they sped up at the last minute and got too close. I don't know why they sped up. I'm sorry. It's okay, the first voice says in a tone that is a little calmer. Let's just get her out. Then I hear a deep, husky voice. What about the others in the car? They're still alive. Leave them. We don't have any time. I'm sure the soldiers in the Humvees called for backup. They'll be here any minute. I raise my head and turn it toward the voices, but I can only see people from the waist down. No faces. They wear dark military-style uniforms. A trickle of blood runs from my forehead into my one good eye. The other eye is already swollen shut. Moving my head sends it spinning even faster. A dark, blurry face bends to look inside the SUV. Then a hand reaches for me. After that, there is nothing but darkness. 11. Sudden Evacuation I open one eye. Everything is a blur, and my other eye will not open. Reaching a hand to my face, I wince at the pain as I touch the swollen tissue. I rest my hands on a firm mattress. The sheets feel stiff, like in a hospital. I push on my hands to sit up, but a sharp pain pierces my right side. I grab my side with my hand and fall backward. Take it easy there. 
I can hear an older man's voice from somewhere nearby. Through my one open eye, I see a blurry figure leaning against the wall. I try to talk. Where am My mouth is too dry, and my head feels light. I stop. Footsteps come toward me. You took quite a spill, the voice says. You need to rest. Here, this will help. The figure's hand is on my back, trying to help me sit. My vision starts coming into focus. I am right. It is an older man, probably in his seventies, with white hair, a white mustache, and wiry glasses. He wears a long, white coat. I grab my side again as the pain stabs me. This will help with that, too, the man says. He holds a cup to my mouth and helps me drink. It tastes fizzy and thick. What did I just drink? But it seems to have helped my mouth and throat already. I cough and clear my throat. Where am I? What happened? Where is my dad? Who are you? The pain shoots through my side again. I grimace. You are in Hancock, New Hampshire, the man says. As for the rest of your questions, they can wait. I'm a doctor, and you need to rest. I'm sure all your questions will be answered once you're up to it. For now, rest. And by the way, the name is Sam. I lie back down and sigh as the pain in my side subsides. My eyelids are already growing heavy. I want to know more, right here and now, but I cannot formulate another question. I am exhausted, and whatever the doctor gave me must be working. I feel relaxed, pain-free. I give in to sleep. It seems like only seconds later when I hear a door creak. I open my good eye. My vision is in focus, and I feel much better, much more rested. I turn my head slightly and see the doctor, Sam, entering the room with a tray of food. The smell of french fries fills the air. I am starving. How long was I asleep? I ask. Sam smiles. Since I gave you the medicine, it's been fourteen hours. I was coming in to wake you before we lost you forever. He chuckles. I try to sit up, but the sharp pain shoots through my side again. Sam sets down the food and grabs me. Hold on now. It's going to take more than fourteen hours of sleep to heal those bruises. Nothing's broken. You just took a good shot to the ribs. And another good one in the face. You have quite a shiner. Don't worry, though. No permanent damage. Sam leaves me alone to eat. The food is delicious. Simple, but good. A hamburger and french fries. A cold soda would wash it down nicely, but all I have is water. I hold the glass up to the light and swirl it. All clear. No additives this time. I look around the room as I eat. I cannot figure out where I am. I am definitely not in a hospital or clinic, at least not any like I have ever seen before. It does not even look like a doctor's office, and there's no smell of medicine. It has all the equipment you would see in a hospital room, but the feel is quite different. For one thing, there are no windows. The floor is tile, and the walls are covered with soft blue and gray striped wallpaper. 
There are 85 stripes of each color on the walls and 403 tile squares on the floor. It seems like an office that has been turned into a makeshift hospital room. I reach into my pocket and pull out my cell phone. I have to try again. I dial my dad's number. Nothing but silence. I try to remember what happened. I had finally found my dad. I was going to help us get back to our time period. We were going to drive to the site of the sphere to do so. Then we were ambushed. But by whom? The man in the Carhartt jacket was with them. But I did not see any of the attackers' faces. It happened so fast. Who has me now? If I was being held by the government, my dad would also be here. So, the attackers must have me. But why? How do I get back to my dad? Footsteps approach the closed door to my room. Three people. They stop at the door and talk. I doubt that they know I can hear them. Two males and one female. They are discussing a fight and shooting. They have just returned from a gunfight. The door opens without a knock, and three people walk in. I start pulling the bed sheets up to my neck and notice I am still wearing the same clothes the military man gave me in Boston. They are a bit torn and bloodstained, but at least I know they did not undress me. I look at my three visitors. They all wear the pieced-together military-style uniforms the ambushers wore. They really do look like they just came from some type of a fight. Their skin is shiny with sweat and streaked with dirt and grime. One of them steps close to the side of my bed. He looks solidly built and ruggedly handsome, probably in his twenties. A chain tattoo circles his left bicep. Except for his light brown hair, he looks familiar in the same way that Mr. Johnson did. He stares at me, looking deep into my eyes. He looks as if he has seen a ghost. Tears well up in his eyes. What? I ask. He turns away quickly. It's her, all right. Minus the shiner. It is who? I demand. And who are you people? He rubs the back of his hand across his face and turns back toward me, ignoring my questions, his eyes now red. How do you feel? It is a simple enough question, but it irritates me. Where do these people get off asking me questions and talking to me like I have been with them forever? I am the one with the questions. When are they going to start giving me answers? I would feel a lot better if someone would tell me what is going on, I say. I glare at the man who stands over my bed and then at a man who leans against the far wall. He is African-American, tall and muscular. I do not think I have ever seen someone this big in person. He wears a black combat vest stuffed full of what looks like various handguns, grenades, and whatever other weapons he can fit in that will shoot, burn, or explode. All right, the man by my bed says, his voice cracking. Fair enough. Let me see. Where to start? He is interrupted by a woman standing just inside the door. Do you think it's a good idea, telling her now? The woman is average-sized, seems very athletic, and has a gun slung over her shoulder. She has a dark complexion and short brown hair that looks like she cut it herself with a razor. She probably looks a lot less like one of the guys when she isn't covered in grime. 
How do we know she's not already working for them? I look at her and grit my teeth. For whom? I demand. What are you talking about? The woman's face tightens as she takes two steps closer to me. Look, girl, don't get mouthy with me. If it was my decision, we would have already fed you to the wolves. The man by the bed quickly turns toward the woman. It's not your decision. Now back off. The large man leaning against the wall grins and shakes his head. The man by the bed speaks. You deserve an explanation. He nods toward the large man. This is Isaiah Burton. He turns toward the woman. Your friend here is Danica Eubanks. Danica rolls her eyes. The man continues. You are in Hancock, New Hampshire. Just not quite the Hancock, New Hampshire you know. Oh, and I'm Sean Patterson. As the name Sean Patterson registers in my mind, and before I can reply, the door bursts open and a small Japanese man runs into the room, dressed in the same makeshift military fatigues as the others. The man looks at Sean and pants for a moment, catching his breath, then speaks in broken English. They found us. They know we're here. They're on their way. What do you want us to do? Sean turns quickly to face him. Okay, Takeo. We knew this could happen. They must have followed us. Contact Massachusetts. Tell them we need an immediate evac to HQ. Round up everyone and head to the tunnel. He looks at Danica. You get fancy and grab the laptops and comm equipment. I'll get a couple guys and we'll grab the guns and ammo. Isaiah, you help Serenity. We'll all meet at the tunnel in ten. Danica pulls her automatic weapon off her shoulder and steps up to Sean. She tilts her head toward me. We should leave her behind for them. I told you we should never have brought her here. She's going to get us all killed. Sean's face goes blank. She might just be the only person who can save us. I catch myself staring at Sean throughout the commotion. I now realize it is and is not Sean Patterson, my Harvard schoolmate, my fencing partner. His hair is different and he is more muscular, but it is Sean. How can this be? How can any of this be? As Sean and Danica leave the room, I sit up, put my feet on the floor, and start to stand. It feels like there is a knife stuck in my ribs. I grab my side and double over. Isaiah walks to me, kneels, puts his arm around my back, cups his forearm and hand behind both of my knees, and scoops me up. I've got you, ma'am. His voice is deep, yet gentle. Too gentle, it seems, for the giant of a man that he is. Wait, I say. Why should I go with you people? Who's coming? Is it my dad coming to rescue me? Leave me here. Isaiah looks at me with compassion. I know how confused you must be, but you have to trust me. You really need to come with us. Sean will finish explaining everything when we get to Massachusetts. Isaiah is going to take me with him whether I want to go or not, so I put an arm around his neck to brace myself. I glance at his face. His expression is guileless. I still do not know who to trust. I just want to find my dad and go home. I do not know who they are or what they want. But on the other hand, Mr. Franklin seemed very demanding regarding his agenda. And why would my dad call me Pumpkin? Then, 
there is Mr. Bailey's warning that they are not who I think they are. And so far, these people are treating me fine. Except Danica. And they are taking care of me. Besides, at the moment, I do not have much of a choice. I look at Isaiah. Why not just go to the police? Isaiah looks at me. They own the police. Isaiah carries me down four different hallways, all with doors along either side, some open and some closed. I look into the rooms with open doors. They look like offices of various sizes that have been repurposed. More hospital rooms, a communications room, a computer room, a lunch room, and most noticeably, a number of bedrooms. Isaiah looks at his watch. His pace picks up, and so does the bounce in his step. With each bounce comes a jab in my side. I have to keep quiet. It cannot be easy for him to carry me, and I know the pain would be so much worse if I was walking. What is this place? I ask as I bounce in Isaiah's arms. Home, Isaiah answers, still breathing easily. At the end of the last hall, we go through a door and descend six flights of stairs. Through another door, we enter a large, damp, dimly lit storage area. The air smells stale, probably the basement of whatever building this is, or was. I notice twelve filing cabinets against the wall, some old computers on tables, and outdated dresses, scarves, and other women's clothing hanging on numerous racks throughout the room. I can see twenty full racks in what little light there is. I guess that we are in some type of office building that has been turned into a safe house. Isaiah walks us to the back of the room. Takeo is already there with a large group of men and women. Fifty-two people. Some are dressed in the black combat outfits, others are dressed more like doctors or nurses, and still others are dressed in street clothes. It is quiet, considering how many people are in the room. Takeo breaks the silence, barking orders to five men who remove concrete blocks from the back wall. Danica arrives with a red-headed woman who looks to be in her forties and has a large scar on her left cheek. I assume this is fancy. She, too, wears combat gear. They each carry two large, unzipped duffel bags stuffed with laptops and assorted tech equipment. Sean and two other men follow them. Between the three of them, they carry two large trunks. Must be the ammunition and extra weapons. Finally, Dr. Sam enters the room, pushing a wheelchair. All clear. Takeo says loudly. Isaiah sets me in the wheelchair and pushes it forward. They have opened up a hole in the wall leading into a dark tunnel. A few people pull out flashlights. Sean and his two men go first, followed by Danica and Fancy, then Isaiah and me. Everyone else follows us, with Takeo taking up the rear, carrying an assault rifle almost as large as he is. Everyone is quiet and falls into place perfectly. I am quite sure they have either been through this before or have practiced the drill many times. The tunnel is damp and smells musty. When the occasional flashlight shines on the wall or ceiling, I see concrete, dark, moist, concrete blocks. The tunnel is tall enough for everyone, even Isaiah, to stand up straight. Where are we going? I say quietly, leaning my head back toward Isaiah. Massachusetts he says. 
I am learning quickly that Isaiah is not much for words. I decide not to ask him any more questions. The end of the tunnel is blocked by a round metal slab. Sean and the other two men set down the trunks. They each grip a spot on the large plate and try to push it. The veins in their arms and necks bulge, and their faces tighten as they grunt and groan. The plate barely moves. It's stuck, one of the men says. Isaiah flips the wheelchair brake. He steps up, motions for one of the men to move back, and takes his place. The three of them push again. Isaiah never makes a sound. He just grits his teeth and lowers his head. The plate screeches, scraping the block edges until it falls over in a loud thud. Sean and the other two men stand for a moment, hands on their knees. Isaiah slowly walks back over to me, folds his arms, and stands straight. I hold out my hand. Let me walk for a bit. I feel better. I want to try to get a look outside the tunnel to see if I can tell where we are, and who the people are that are evacuating us. And if I do not like what I see, maybe I can sneak away. Although, in my condition, I doubt I can get far, and I need to better understand the situation before I know where to go. What I need right now is information. Isaiah does not say anything. He just holds out his arm to give me support. We move up by Sean, Danica, and Fancy. Two men step forward as well, their automatic weapons at the ready. The tunnel opens out of a hillside and into a field. I do not recognize the place. It is hard to see in the moonless night. I cannot see anything above or behind us due to the hill. A slight hum comes from behind us, over the hill. Helicopters. Two small ones. They'll need more than two helicopters to transport this many people. I look at Sean. What are the Massachusetts people sending to evacuate us? Helicopters, Sean replies. I hear them, Danica says. Come on, let's go. She motions to the group behind her. Wait, I say. How many will they send? Sean raises an eyebrow. Five. That's typical evac procedure for a group our size. Will they send them together? I ask. Always, Sean says. But there are only two small helicopters coming, I reply. Small rotors for maneuverability. Probably fighters. Danica shakes her head and curls her lips. I hear them as well as you. If you hear one or a hundred helicopters, they sound the same. And there's no way the feds know about this tunnel and that we will be coming out here. Danica turns to me with a glare. You just want us to get caught. Like I said, you're probably working for them. She turns back toward Sean. Now let's go before the feds locate our birds. Sean looks at me. What makes you think there are only two? Just like all of my calculations and computations, I do not know how I identify the sound of two helicopters as opposed to three, four, or five, nor do I know how I recognize the type of helicopter. I just know. I look at Danica and then at Sean. I cannot explain it. I just know. There are only two helicopters coming over that hill. Sean looks at me, then at Danica, then back at me. Then he looks outside the tunnel. He stands there. The whirl of the helicopters grows louder. Danica pounds the stock of her gun against the ground, grits her teeth, and tightens her face, 
putting herself nose to nose with Sean. She shouts, don't think I don't know why you're giving her the benefit of the doubt like this. There are a lot of lives at stake here. I've fought beside you every day for the past three years. We've held family and friends in our arms together as they've died for our cause. And you're going to ignore me and trust this blondie who you didn't even know until yesterday? You know she's a different person. Danica shakes her head. How could you? Sean glances at me one more time with a troubled look, then looks away. You're right. He turns back to the group and yells, let's move out. I look at Isaiah. Isaiah, I know that I am right. Isaiah stares at me, frozen where he stands. The entire group pushes past us until only Takeo, Isaiah, and I are left at the edge of the tunnel. Takeo looks up at Isaiah. Let's go, big guy. Isaiah still does not move. I see the flash before I hear the air-to-ground ballistic missiles strike the ground. I have to close my one good eye as the blinding light illuminates the tunnel entrance. I try to stay on my feet, but the momentum of the blast knocks me to the cold, hard floor of the tunnel. I go deaf for a moment from the concussion of the explosion. Everything seems to move in slow motion. Isaiah stumbles and falls over backward. Takeo, too, falls to the ground. As my hearing returns, I hear muffled sounds, sounds of screams and shouts. Over and over, I hear, get back to the tunnel, get back to the tunnel. I do not know who is shouting or how many people are still alive to scream. Then I hear machine gun fire from the helicopters. I lay on the ground, unable to move and watch as what is left of our group races back toward me and the tunnel. Most of them are mowed down by the gunfire. I want to help them, but I am helpless. Blood spurts from arms, legs, and heads. People fall. Some try to crawl the last few yards to the tunnel or try to get back up, just to be hit again. I close my eyes. I have never seen carnage like this before not even on television, let alone to be living it. Who is doing this, and why? It is certainly not my dad's men trying to rescue me. He would never be part of something like this. There is another explosion. This one is in the sky above the hill. The sky lights up. Then a second explosion, and another flash of light. Then the gunfire and screams are replaced by the whirl of helicopters. This time, five of them. Twelve, HQ. Only two of the five helicopters are needed to transport what is left of the group. I sit quietly in my seat. Everyone is silent, with blank stares on their faces. Like me, they are probably recounting the horror we just lived through. I stare out the helicopter window, watching the sunrise. I am able to see slightly out of my bad eye, orange and yellow breaking over the distant hillside. I have always loved to watch the sunrise over New Hampshire, how it slowly lights up the trees and grass, the entire countryside. But this is the first time I have seen it from this vantage point, in the air. I try to forget, for the moment, where I am. 
I let my mind wander back to the brightly colored fall trees that I had observed just two days ago. I leaned closer to the window and looked down. The sun is high enough now to light up the landscape. I blink a couple of times to clear my vision, but it is still the same. I close my good eye for a few seconds, then open it. The landscape still looks the same as it did moments earlier. I lean farther forward. That cannot be. This is not the tree and grass-covered landscape of the New Hampshire that I know. A lot of it is barren. The hills are still there, but many of the trees are gone. Those that remain are dead or dying. They have the same look that I had seen earlier, up close, but from this viewpoint, I see it on a much larger scale. The grasslands look dead as well, mostly gray or completely dried up. Maybe it is just the altitude. But no, the woods around the facility were the same, and so were the trees and grass in town. I am seeing correctly. Everything I see, everyone I meet, makes me long for my dad and for home. This is one long nightmare. I look across the helicopter at the others. Only Isaiah and Takeo are without injury. The tunnels spared them, and me. Danica sits with a blood-soaked wrap around her thigh. She stares at the floor. Fancy is a few more people away, bent forward holding her side. She is pale, very pale. At first, I cannot see the wound. Then, when Fancy's hand moves slightly, I see her blood-stained shirt. Sean is seated next to Danica. He lifts his hand and touches a large cut on his forehead. He grimaces as he looks at me. How did you know? He pauses and takes a deep breath. About the helicopters. When he lowers his arm, I see a wrap on his bicep. Blood is starting to seep through. The volume, the differences in the whirl of the blades. Like so many things, I wish I did not know. Then I would not feel responsible. I should have been more insistent with Sean, with the others. But how do I explain all of this to him? I shake my head, feeling the frustration building inside me. You would not understand. I look back out the window. Even the most seasoned combat veteran with years of training and field experience wouldn't have been able to do that, Sean says. I turn toward Sean. I did not ask to be here. You drag me along without any explanation as to who you people are or why you have me. I tried to help, but you ignored me. Now all those people are dead. I want information, but you give me nothing. I owe you no explanation. Sean starts to respond, but is interrupted by the pilot speaking over the comm. Hang on back there. We're heading into land. The helicopter descends, and wind rocks us back and forth until we land atop a rocky cliff overlooking the ocean. The waves crash against the rocks below. I have been along this coast before. We are in Massachusetts. As we exit the helicopters, I am chilled by the cold breeze. Sean quickly exits, so I guess our conversation is over. He waits outside the helicopter to help the injured exit. As I approach the opening, Sean holds out his hand. I look at him, then turn and take Isaiah's arm and step down. Other than a small wooden building, 
I see nothing but rocks and dried, wilted grass. I estimate the square building to be twenty feet by twenty feet. It looks like an abandoned shed or the last remaining structure from a farm. I hold Isaiah's arm to support my aching side as Sean leads the group of survivors toward the building. Everyone is silent. Once we are inside, the door closes and a computer panel lights up on the wall. Sean presses a few buttons on the panel that sends us into a fast, jerky descent. The building's entire interior is an elevator. With one final jolt, we reach the bottom. I grab Isaiah's arm to keep my balance. One side of the elevator opens into a large room with gray cinder block walls, many computer stations scattered throughout, and a large computer screen that covers almost the entire front wall. It shows a map of the world with small yellow dots scattered all over and a lesser number of larger red dots. 122 yellow dots and 33 red dots. There are people everywhere in the room, some in street clothes, some in the same makeshift military fatigues that I saw before. Many are busy working at the computer stations, but others congregate in different-sized groups standing or sitting at the numerous tables at the center of the room. Still, others enter and leave the room through the various connecting corridors. Sean turns to me. This is Massachusetts HQ. You'll be safe here. I glare at him as I step away from Isaiah. Safe? I still do not have an explanation for why you kidnapped me from the people you refer to as the Feds, let alone an explanation for the attack at the tunnel. I am still blindly following you people, mainly because that is my only option at the moment. But I plan on changing that. Look, we saved your life by getting you away from the Feds, and I told you I would explain everything, and I will. When have I ever not kept my word? This is not like me. I never get angry. I take a deep breath to try to calm down, but it does not work. Oh, I would not know, Sean. I just met you last night. Turning away quickly, I lose my balance. An older lady whose graying hair is dyed a bluish shade catches me and guides me toward an empty wheelchair. She is dressed in street clothes. So, your serenity? Looks like I got to you with this chair just in time. She holds out a hand. So nice to meet you. With one hand on the wheelchair for support, I shake her hand and force a smile, still trying to calm down. How does this lady know my name? How does everyone seem to know my name? I'm Marlene, she says, but most people here just call me Ma. Come on, I'll show you your room and where you can clean up and get something to eat. I glance at Isaiah. He looks at me, then at the wheelchair, and then back at me. He nods. I do not know why I look to Isaiah for confirmation, but there is something about him that makes me trust him more than the others. So I climb into the chair. The place is a maze of well-lit corridors. After leaving the operations room, as Ma called it, Ma pushes me through another large room. It is about half the size of the operations room and is set up as a cafeteria. Next, we pass the men's and women's bathrooms and shower rooms. All of the hallways look the same. They have white, tile-dropped ceilings, and bright fluorescent lights contrast against the gray cinder block walls and yellowish tile floor.
Here we are, Ma says as we come to a junction with four new passageways that shoot off from it. These are the sleeping corridors. She points down one hall. The men's corridor goes that way. She points down another. The women's that way. And families stay in those rooms. She points down the third hall. Then Ma points to the fourth hallway. Down there, you'll find the laundry room and a place to pick up new clothes, a toothbrush, soap, whatever you need. And if you can't find what you want or need, just ask whoever is working there. We have people getting things from the stores in town daily. On top of my anger and exhaustion, I feel overwhelmed. This is a whole other world. Things just keep getting crazier by the minute. Why do all these people live down here? They must fear the government or the feds. And why is everyone being so welcoming? Like, I should feel safe here with them, like a protected refugee. Anyway, I do not pay much attention to the last part of what Ma is saying. I have no intention of staying here long enough to need anything. Oh, Ma says, and medical is down there as well. She nods toward the last corridor. You might want to get that eye in your side looked at again. That makes me think of Dr. Sam, who treated me. The doctor, Sam, I say. Did he make it? Ma smiles. He's fine. A few cuts and scrapes, but yes, he made it. Ma helps me to the shower, then shows me to my room. It isn't much. A perfect square with more gray cinder block walls, a white dropped ceiling, fluorescent lighting, and yellowish tile floor. It is furnished with a bed, a small closet, a trunk for belongings, and a small nightstand with a brush, mirror, and clock on it. Very institutional looking. I then realize how hungry I am. But even more than wanting to eat, I want to sleep. I down most of the bottle of water that Ma had given me and then lie down on the bed. Sleep instantly overtakes me. This time, it is a restless sleep. Nightmares consume me. But not my usual dream about my mom and Jonah. Instead, I dream about men and women who are outside the tunnel and get shot by machine gun fire as they hopelessly try to make it back to safety. There is blood everywhere. Don't go out there! Don't go out there! I wake myself screaming. Cold sweat soaks my clothes and sheets. I sit up and take a drink of water. I should have done more to stop them from leaving the tunnel. I look at the clock. 4 p.m. More sleep isn't going to come, so I might as well satisfy my hunger. I make my way to the cafeteria. Even after seeing the maze of corridors just once, they are imprinted in my mind. The people all walk quickly from one place to another. Each one has a preoccupied look on his or her face. They all walk with a purpose. Everyone must have a job to do in whatever place this is. Sean sits alone in the cafeteria, eating a sandwich. It is time to get some answers. I grab a tray, pick up a sandwich and drink for myself, and look for a place to pay. Not that I have any money on me, but I figure I can explain myself to the cashier. But I cannot see a cashier. People seem to be picking up whatever they want, sitting down and eating. So I follow along. I head straight for Sean. His back is to me, 
but I can see that his head has been treated. It is bandaged and looks much better now. His arm also has clean wraps on it. He looks at something on a computer notepad lying on the table in front of him. I approach quietly and see that he is looking at a digital picture, a picture of a woman. I draw closer. It is not just any woman. It is a picture of me. But in the picture, my hair is short and dark red, my eyes are green, and my complexion is darker. I am also more physically fit, my body more toned. And I have the same chain tattoo around my left bicep that Sean has. But the face in the picture is mine. No mistake about it. What is up with these people? The people I recognize are different. Different in appearance like Sean. The Sean I know is not built like that. And different mentally. The Mr. Johnson I know is never that nice. And what is up with Sean? This Sean. He could have digitally enhanced a picture of me to change my appearance. That is kind of disturbing. And why would he do that? Or is that a picture of another me? What is really going on here? Sean quickly turns and flips the pad over, slamming it face down on the table. What do you think you're doing, sneaking up like that? What right does he have to be upset with me? He is the one with a picture of me. I step around to the other side of the table, drop my tray on top of it, and before I sit down, I retort, I did not sneak up on you. You were just too enthralled with that picture. And what are you doing with a picture of me anyway? And why do I look like that in it? So different. Why does everyone look different? Now I have these questions on top of all the questions I already want to ask him. You promised me answers. Sean takes a deep breath. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. You're right. We dragged you through two states. You've been shot at and beaten up, and we haven't given you a single explanation. He motions to the seat across from him. Please, sit down. I stand there for a moment, contemplating whether to sit down or leave. I came over to him to get answers, but he makes me angry. Why do I get so angry around him? I hardly ever get angry. But I am also afraid. Scared that I will never see my dad again or Jonah. That I will never get home. But I cannot let Sean know that I am afraid. I cannot let these people think that I am weak. I do not know what their intentions are. I decide that my fear and the opportunity to get some answers outweighs my frustration with Sean. So I slowly pull out the chair and sit. But I do not scoot up to the table. My bottled water and cold lunch meat sandwich will have to wait. Okay, I am listening, I say. I'm not sure where to start, Sean says. It would be more like you to ask the questions and lead the conversation. My eyes narrow. More like me? What do you know about me? You know nothing about me. At least not about the real me. I look at his notepad that sits face down on the table. Sean rolls his eyes and shakes his head. Do you know a Philip Ashdown? I ask. Sean takes a drink of water and pushes the remainder of his sandwich to the side. Yes, but not the Philip Ashdown you know. Not the Philip Ashdown who is your father. 
What do you mean? I ask as I fold my arms to hide my shaking hands. I was just with my dad when you people took me. Or at least, I presume it was you who took me since I woke up in your hideout. Not to mention the fact that you almost killed me, and for all I know, you did kill my dad. Sean looks at me. First, everyone else who is in your vehicle is fine. Second, your vehicle was not supposed to crash or get hit. We had it planned perfectly to force your vehicle to stop without hitting it. But your driver sped up at the last minute for some reason, throwing the timing off. Our surface-to-surface -surface should have hit the road far enough in front of your vehicle to allow for a safe stop. He pauses, looks down, shifts in his seat, then looks at me again. And third, that was not your father. But, he holds up his hand. Let me finish. No, I interrupt. What do you mean he was not my father? Do you think I do not know my own dad? Sean grins. Now you're acting just like her. I pull myself closer to the table, but keep my hands underneath it. Like who? What are you even talking about? I stop myself. Wait, stop changing the subject. Do you know where my dad is? He is the most frustrating person I have ever met. Or maybe it is this whole situation. It is really getting to me. I feel a lump form in my throat, and my eyes start to water. No way, I tell myself. No way am I going to let him see me cry. I take a gulp from my bottled water. Sean holds out a hand, palm down. Relax, I'll get to your father. Relax? Who is he to tell me to relax? But he is right. I do need to calm down. Patience, serenity. Patience. I take a deep breath and another drink of water. Fine. Continue. A couple of days ago, you walked through some sort of constructed device, a sphere-shaped metallic structure, am I right? I fold my arms again and nod. How does everybody know that? And why is that always the lead-in for their explanation? Sean continues. And everything seemed to change for you, didn't it? Maybe. What do you know about it? Well... I know whatever the feds. He pauses. I mean, whatever the people that were holding you told you about it isn't true. What did they tell you it was? A view into an alternate future or something? I do not like his tone. Mr. Franklin, Mr. Bailey, and my dad, I paused for emphasis, explained that it was some sort of time portal, and the timeline I was living in got altered but I suppose you are going to tell me that they are lying about that, too. Sean leans forward, placing his elbows on the table. It's not a time portal, and everything that I'm telling you is the truth. You have to believe me. Why should I believe you? You have not given me a better explanation for everything that has happened. Sean shakes his head. Maybe if Isaiah told you, you would believe it. And just what is that supposed to mean? Sean leans back and looks down. Nothing. Never mind. He pauses, then looks up. Okay. So their explanation must have been something like everyone and everything you know looks a little different because you're in a different time or you changed the space-time continuum. Something like that. Am I right? I hesitate. 
Why am I the one giving the information? And my dad went through too. That is why he and I look the same as we always have. Sean sits there. He seems hesitant to tell me again that it was a lie. And what did they say you need to do? Is he playing me? Maybe he doesn't have an explanation, and he is using me for his fishing expedition, trying to gather intelligence on the feds. Maybe I should stop answering and start asking. What do you think they want me to do? Sean sits up. I don't know exactly why they need you to do so, or how, but I think they told you they want you to help them get you and your father home, back through their time portal. Am I close? Again, the frustration builds. But am I frustrated because I am not getting any closer to any answers? Or am I frustrated because he is right? Well, programming their time portal is just what I was going to do until you and your people came along. Sean leans forward, elbows on the table again. Okay, don't go getting all serenity on me, and just hear me out. I do not even know what he is talking about, but it is insulting. I am used to insults, but usually from people jealous of my mental abilities or people who do not understand me. But Sean is being much more personal. I feel the lump rising in my throat again, but I will not cry. I do not talk for fear of losing it. Sean continues. Those guys you mentioned work for the government. The feds, as we call them. Well, all but Mr. Bailey. I'll explain that later. What they told you about a time portal and a new timeline is what they want you to believe. If they tell you the truth, they know that you won't help them. I shake my head. My dad would never lie to me. But I have to admit to myself that he might not tell me the whole truth. Fine. For the sake of argument, if they are lying to me, how about you tell me the truth? Sean straightens in his seat. When you walked through the sphere, you didn't change any timeline. You entered a parallel universe. Another universe with another Earth and a duplicate of every person. That's why you recognize people in places, but they all look a little different, act a little different, and have different personalities. And someone might be athletic in one universe, but not in the other. Or really smart in one universe, but not in the other. Back in your universe, there is another me. You may not have met me, but I bet I look and act a little different. Everyone in your universe is also in this universe. Or was, at least. People can die at different times. I hesitate. Now what do I believe? What is more plausible, altering time or a parallel universe? I have disproved Dr. Gruber's theory of time travel. It does not work. But what if there is another way, another theory that does work? That would have to be a more plausible explanation than a parallel universe. And that would mean that Sean is wrong about my dad. Maybe I can find a hole in Sean's parallel universe explanation. Okay. But why does my dad look the same, I ask. And why has nobody in my universe ever heard of this? Sean takes a drink of his water. They made our Philip Ashdown look exactly like your father in order to trick you. And people in your universe do know of this. At least certain people do. Do you know Dirk Bailey in your universe? 
My spine tingles thinking of my encounters with Mr. Bailey and what he has put my dad through. Yes, I say. My dad works for him. What is your point? He actually works for our government, the feds, Sean says. There are a few others in your universe that we believe work with him, but we don't know how high up it goes. Okay, I say. For the sake of argument, assuming this is true, how high up in your government does it go? Sean leans forward again. All the way. All the way to President Masterson. I shake my head. No, I still do not believe you. If all of this is true, why did they make your Philip Ashdown look like my dad? And where is my dad? And why do they need me? You've noticed our landscape, right? How everything looks like it's dead or dying? Sean asks. I adjust myself in my seat. Yes, I thought it looked a little unusual. Well, every country on our planet has been engaged in constant war, Sean says. We have developed weapons far beyond the capabilities of weapons in your world, because that's all we have focused on at the expense of the people and the planet. There is no quality of life anywhere in the world. Unless you work for the feds, you have nothing. And ever since the United States, the Soviet Union, and China combined to form the United Republic, there is no hope of any other country overtaking the feds, let alone the entire U.R. The U.R.? I say. Yeah, Sean says. And Wes Masterson is the president of it all. So, again, assuming you are right, and I am not saying that I believe you, who are the feds? I ask. That's what the resistance called the U.S. government and military prior to the formation of the U.R. And at least here in the U.S., the name still sticks, although they're technically the U.R. now. But the bigger problem we have is the environment. With all the vegetation dying, soon the wildlife and livestock will start to die. I interrupt him. And then the people starve. Right, he says. Then we have chaos. I dab beads of perspiration from my forehead with a napkin. The environmental conditions in this place have been almost perfect until now. Now I feel warm. Too warm. But it probably has more to do with the conversation than with the temperature. Sean continues. Think back to when you talked to your father. I mean, our Philip Ashdown. Did he say or do anything uncharacteristic of your father? I cut my hands over my face and place my elbows on the table. I remember that he called me pumpkin rather than peanut. That was odd. But I do not want to let Sean know that yet. Not until I am convinced that his explanation is correct. And not until I know what he and his people want from me. So I just shake my head. If the feds, as you call them, do not want me to help them program a time portal, what do they want me to do? And what do you and your people want with me? When Sean leans forward, his eyes light up. It seems like these are the questions he wanted me to ask. They do want you to help them program the sphere, if that's what they told you. Whatever the reason they said, a time portal or whatever, it doesn't matter. Because you're not programming a time portal. You're programming the sphere for their purpose. The Resistance doesn't know what that purpose is yet, but we know the Feds have been working on it for a long time. 
The details are being kept at the highest level within the feds. His hand moves, bumping my water bottle. It wobbles but stays upright. Sean glances at it and then looks back at me. They needed their Philip Ashdown to convince you to do it. But they don't care whether you get back home. They don't care if your father does either. He's in our world too, but you haven't seen him. I stare intently at Sean, not wanting to break his flow of information. I do not know whether to believe him, but at least I am finally getting some answers. I nod so that he will continue. Anyway, he says, whatever the feds are up to, it isn't good for the resistance, this world, or you and your father. And we, the resistance, are trying to stop them. He leans back. We have pockets all over the world. Ultimately, we'd like to overthrow our government, the feds, but we know that's unlikely anytime soon. What we really want to do is save our world from dying, which means stopping the wars, stopping the focus on weapons, and stopping the destruction. It also means focusing on sustaining what is left of the environment, building an economy, giving the people hope and a way of life. He leans forward again, grabbing my water bottle and flipping it from hand to hand as he talks. And our more immediate concern is to stop the feds from doing whatever they are up to with the sphere. He looks at my water bottle, sets it down, and then looks at me. Sorry. I ignore the water bottle. Okay, assuming all of this is true, what does your resistance need with me? I am sorry for all the problems you are dealing with. I really am. But this is not my fight. I just want to find my dad and go home. If home is through another sphere, whether a time portal or another universe, then I am all for helping to program it and going through it with my dad. Sean drops his head slightly and lowers his gaze toward the table, toward the notepad where the picture of the girl, of me, had been. He speaks solemnly. What does the resistance need with you? He looks up to make eye contact with me. We need you to lead us, to keep us united. I have no idea what he is talking about. What? I thought that you are the leader, or that you have someone leading you. We did have someone. He looks back down at the notepad and turns it over. The red-headed, combat-looking version of me is on the screen. Her. It instantly clicks. Your serenity? She is the leader of the resistance? She was. I can tell that he does not want to talk about her. She must have meant more to him than an ordinary leader does, but I have to push him on this. I have to know. What happened? She was killed a couple of days ago in a skirmish. It was just a simple mission to recover some documents from the feds. I was supposed to lead the team, but I got tied up on some other unimportant matter. At the time, I didn't think anything of it because it was a low-risk mission with a very low probability of any casualties. But I should have known that she would go if I wasn't able to. They met heavy resistance. Somehow the feds knew what we were doing. Instinctively, I reach out and touch his hand, but he jerks it back. Realizing what I did, I pull my hand back too. We both look at the table where our hands were, but we say nothing about it. I speak softly. I am sorry. 
I can tell that she meant a lot to you. But what are you expecting me to do? The feds don't know she was killed. She was out in front with Trent Bassani, another member of the team from California HQ. Too far in front, according to the rest of the team. When the rest of the team caught up, they found Serenity critically wounded and Trent gone. Captured, we figure. She never regained consciousness to tell us what happened. He shakes his head slowly. Why would those two have gone out of sight of the team? Anyway... The feds have a suspicion that she's dead, but no confirmation. And so, there hasn't been an announcement to the world yet. Only the HQ resistance fighters know. If word spreads through the resistance and the general population, the resistance will be finished. Serenity was the resistance. She is the one everyone follows. She is the sole reason we continue to recruit people. Without her, I fear... We all fear that we are done. And you want me to be her? I ask. Sean nods. The idea came to us when we heard that you came through the sphere. Otherwise, we would never ask. If we can make you up to look like our serenity and show the world that you, that she, is not dead, then we may have a chance. And in the process, we can help you get home. I am sorry, but... Even if I wanted to, I am not your serenity. I do not even know how to hold a gun, let alone shoot one, or any weapon for that matter. And fight? I study fencing, but only as a hobby. That is not fighting. I very much dislike violence. I shake my head. No, I am sorry. You wouldn't have to shoot or fight or anything. We just need you to look like you can. We would make you look like our serenity and show you to the rest of the world. That's all. I shake my head again. Sean, I truly am sorry. But even if I believe everything that you are telling me, I do not want to get involved in your world. I simply want to find my dad and go home. Now, where is my dad? Do the feds have him? Sean reaches across the table as if to take my hands in his, but he does not. Yes, the feds have your father, and they'll use him as leverage to get you back. Like I said, they need you to help them for their purpose. But I think we may be able to use the sphere to get you and your father back home through it. He pauses, looks down at the table, and then looks up at me. Serenity, I will never make you do anything that you do not want to do. The decision is yours. And if that decision is to get your father back and go home, I personally, and the Resistance, will do everything in our power to help you do that. Just think about it, please. Whoa, things have definitely taken a turn. Which group should Serenity trust? Who's telling the truth? It seems like everyone wants something from her. I have so many questions. I can't imagine what's going through Serenity's mind. I guess we'll find out in the next episode. Stay tuned. So, don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped.
If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.